History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 392nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, as our listeners are going to hear, uh, my voice is going to be a little under the weather because I've had one of those summer colds. Luckily, I moved through you pretty quickly and you're on the tail end of it. That's true. And I haven't been sick for three and a half years. So I was kind of overdue. And if I have to get a cold, I'd rather have one in the summer because there's nothing worse than being freezing and having a cold, (laughs) at least in my world. In your world. There's nothing worse than freezing, period, (laughs) in my world. This is true. On this episode, we're going to another one of those most haunted cities in America, one that we haven't been to together that I hope we do get to do one day, and that is Salem. And this is the Lyceum Hall. They have great architecture there, and the graveyards are amazing. So, Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to getting there one day. This is now home to the Turner Seafood Grill and Market, but it once was a Lyceum Hall, and uh, we're going to explain to people what that is and the ghosts and haunts going on there. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, we have two Lisas. We have Lisa K and Lisa N, Kindness Heart, and Rachel. Thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Gail Frederick. Near the Black Sea in Turkey stands a very unusual abandoned village. Turkish real estate developers, the Yerdelin brothers, bought this land and plotted out a sprawling village that any wannabe monarch would be happy to buy into. They dubbed their development Buri al-Babas and set out to selling and building 732 mini castles. This was near the town of Modernu, full of curative hot springs, which added another selling point. Each castle would have gothic-styled rooftop terraces and underfloor heating and jacuzzis on every level. And, of course, they looked like mini castles complete with turrets and pointed roofs. This place looked more like a gnome village from afar, but it was meant for wealthy foreigners, and it might have been successful if it had not been for the faltering of Turkey's economy due to terrorist attacks, political coup attempts, and the COVID pandemic. Investors and buyers pulled their money out, and the brothers had to declare bankruptcy. Now the abandoned village just features half-completed castles, destroyed landscaping, and unfinished dirt roads. An abandoned Disney-esque village in the Turkish forest certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history.
month of July, on the 11th in 1905, members of the Niagara Movement meet for the first time. This meeting took place on the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls. The Niagara Movement was a group of African-American men made up of entrepreneurs, scholars, and lawyers, with W.E.B. Du Bois being one of those men. The meeting lasted for three days, and the men laid out plans to push back against racial segregation and hate crimes. This would be the precursor to the later civil rights movement. Booker T. Washington had pushed more of an appeasement plan, while the Niagara Movement decided to focus more on agitation and forming state-level chapters. They fought for fairness in health care, education, voting rights, and employment. The Niagara Movement didn't grow as they hoped and disbanded within five years, but the basic principles would be adopted by the NAACP that formed shortly before the Niagara Movement ended. Lyceums were part of an educational movement in the New England area during the Victorian era. These were places that hosted some of the greatest orators of the time, and one in particular was the scene of Alexander Graham Bell making the first successful long-distance phone call. This would be the Salem Lyceum Hall. Today, it's Turner Seafood Grill and Market. This sits on land once owned by Bridget Bishop, who was the first to die during the Salem Witch Trials. Is the land cursed? Is that why there are ghost stories connected to this property? Join us as we explore the history and haunts of the Lyceum Hall. Salem, Massachusetts, Kelly has made it into several History Ghost Bump episodes. We've talked about the Salem Witch Trials, the Witch House, the House of Seven Gables, and Haunted Derby Street. So there's been a lot of times we've returned back to this city. Hence why we need to go visit in person. Exactly. And I've never been inside the House of Seven Gables, so I would love to visit that one of these days. This is considered, as I said, one of the most haunted cities in America, and it seems to live up to that reputation. Salem had originally been known as Namkiag, which means peace. That moniker certainly didn't match those early years for the Puritan-controlled town that put a couple of dozen people to death for alleged witchcraft. And curses still seem to haunt the area for those early sins. The Great Fire of 1914 in Salem only added more fuel to the negative vibe with half of the city burning down. But on a second glance, Salem is a beautiful New England town with wonderful architecture and history that embraces the Irish, Italian, Polish, and French-Canadian immigrants who helped to build it. All of New England was a diverse area, and it would be here that Lyceums would originate. Lyceums were a completely American movement, and they launched in 1828 when Josiah Holbrook started the first Lyceum in Millbury, Massachusetts. Millbury Lyceum Number 1, Branch of the American Lyceum. The Holbrook family emigrated to America from Darby, England in the late 1600s to New York and eventually spread down to Connecticut to a town they named for their original town in England, Darby. It would be here on the family farm that Josiah would be born in 1788. Holbrook eventually went to Yale College where he studied chemistry and geology. On the family farm, he would set up the first industrial school in the United States. This first school of industrial training for men would inspire the first National Education Association and would lead to an upgrade in school books and materials, more government support for public schools, better skills taught to teachers, natural sciences would become part of the regular curriculum, and start women getting early education for careers. This first industrial school eventually became that first lyceum that Holbrook started. 
Holbrook defined lyceums as places where groups of people interested in obtaining self-culture and knowledge could go to to study agriculture, geology, and mechanics, and later the study of languages was added. After that, all levels of math were introduced along with history and geography. Holbrook devised teaching aids as well. Yeah, it was real interesting, the stuff that he came up with. He had these little boxes that had different shapes, geometry-like shapes. You'd have your circles and cubes and triangles and things like that. And so they would be able to use those in a classroom. He introduced different kinds of globes and would like flatten them out so that the students could carry them with them. So this was really a very early on kind of educational type thing. And I thought it was great because his family had run this huge farm and he inherited it when they died. And I think he was kind of like, well, I don't really want to be a farmer. What am I going to do with all this? Yeah, that's kind of like he created a college type atmosphere. Exactly. It was very similar to that kind of thing. If I was to liken it to something in our modern era, it'd be kind of like, I know when I lived in Denver, they had a school there that you could just take courses that was kind of a, I don't remember what they called it. It was almost like a free school kind of thing. So not like a trade school. Yeah. It was like where you could just go and take courses on certain things, whether it was building stuff like crafts or something like that. It was like the Colorado Free University, I think is what it was called or something like that. They weren't free courses, but it was it was like you didn't have to actually be going to a school and you could just take a course in this or that. Like, so it's like a free choice school. Yeah. And like nowadays, they probably have some courses that would teach you how to podcast and stuff like that. So you could just do something that would focus on one thing that you wanted to learn how to do. And so I kind of liken these lyceums to something like that, where you know people were like, I'd like to learn a little bit about gardening or something. Gotcha. Other towns latched on to this Lyceum idea, and before long, there were 100 similar societies throughout New England. Lyceums also eventually opened in the mid-Atlantic states and the Midwest. By 1834, the number of Lyceums in America had grown to 3,000, so it definitely had gotten very popular. Salem would open its Lyceum in January of 1830, and it was named the Salem Lyceum Society. Its goal was to provide, quote, mutual education and rational entertainment, end quote, for the townspeople. I love that. Rational entertainment? (laughs) Do they have irrational entertainment in places? You can have fun, but it only goes so far. I know. (laughs) Not only would there be educational courses, but there were dramatic readings, debates, and lectures. Many famous orators would pass through the doors, like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, two of my favorites. Lectures covered things like anatomy, literature, politics, science, and phrenology. You know what phrenology is, right? It's when they would study, like, the bumps on people's heads and say, well, this is means that this person has this going on and this has this going on, rather than <laughs> some people just have dented heads here and there. Okay. Would you have to shave your head to be studied? <laughs> I would assume such because they needed to see the shape of your skull. Okay. I'd be kind of weird with somebody, like, fondling <laughs> my head with their hand like that. Well, I don't know. Scalp massage always feels really good. So if they're feeling around for dents, it might be enjoyable. (laughs) These first lectures were hosted at the former Methodist Church on Sewell Street or the Universalist Church on Rust Street because the Lyceum had no official building. That changed in 1831 when the Salem Lyceum Society bought land on Church Street and built a building there for $4,000. I believe this was a wooden building. It was hard to track down what this place even looked like. There were no pictures of it, no descriptions of it. The only thing that I heard later on is that it burned down in that fire of 1914. So I think it was a wooden structure. 
So the building that is there today, I don't believe housed any of these actual lecturers or anything like that. The key here is this land that they bought wasn't just any land. This land had belonged to Bridget Bishop, and this was where her apple orchard had been. Maybe that's why it burned down. (laughs) Well, Bridget Bishop's orchard was on land she had inherited from her second husband, Thomas Oliver. Several girls, Anne Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, and Elizabeth Hubbard, claimed to be afflicted by witchcraft, and Bishop was one of those they accused. She was taken to Ingersoll's Ordinary in Salem Village to be examined. Her accusers were also there, and they writhed on the floor declaring that Bishop was afflicting them. Bishop responded, I never saw these persons before, nor I never was in this place before. I'm as innocent as the child unborn. I am innocent of a witch. Judge Hawthorne accused her and sent her to the Salem jail to be put on trial. She, of course, was sentenced to die, and she would be the first of those accused of witchcraft in Salem to be put to death. So keep in mind that the Salem Lyceum Hall was built on Bishop's land. We did our episode on the Salem witch trials a long time ago, so I don't know if I made this point during that episode, but I often wondered why women like Bridget Bishop would want to live in a Puritan-controlled town. And the reason why I say this is because she was way different than a Puritan woman, and she pushed back against all of their standards. First of all, she was married three, maybe four times, which a woman who'd been married that many times was like, what's going on here? Her second husband was Thomas Oliver, and they said that she had bewitched him, and that's why he died. So it was like they were saying that she'd killed off her husbands, too. The other thing is she ran a tavern. She wore exotic clothing that had a lot of bright colors. Right. I I did read that she wore a red bodice. Well, can you imagine red? Scandalous. Oh, that's the color of the devil. (laughs) She didn't talk right. I'm sure, you know, here's what I envisioned. She was one of those hard living women, ran a bar, probably cussed like a sailor and thumbed her nose at all the standards of society. The thing I find interesting is a lot of people thought, well, she lived where all these girls were, but it seems to me like she lived outside of that. And so when she was under trial and everything, and she's like, I've never seen these kids before. I think she was telling the truth. She didn't know who any of these people were and why they would be accusing her of this. I think those girls were just accusing anybody that was put in front of them. It wasn't just these girls that accused her, though. There were other people in the town that were saying that she talked about how people thought she was a witch. There was one guy that she had asked him to dye a little piece of lace for her, a certain color. And he's like, well, that's not big enough to make any kind of clothing for a woman. She must be making some kind of witchcraft doll or something. And then the main thing that they supposedly found on her, and this was a jury of women who checked out her naked body, is a third nipple which was a sure sign of witchcraft. Oh, my word. Okay. (laughs) Upon second investigation of this, nothing was found. I'm sure she probably at most had maybe a A mole. mole. Yeah. But, oh, my gosh, how many of us would be accused of witchcraft because we have marks on our bodies, whether it's a birthmark or a mole or what have you? Makes you wonder if that's where they got the whole idea that a a witch has got a mole on the end of her nose or chin. (laughs) Could be. Anyway, Bishop would be sentenced to death. She would be the first to die. And as I think most people are aware, in America, they just hanged them. They didn't burn them at the stake like they did over in Europe. Unless, of course, you were Giles Corey, who just had the awful put to death of being pressed to death. Right. I can't imagine. What a brave guy he was, though. He just kept telling them, pile it on. Yep. You would think after so much pressure that you would finally say, okay, I am. I am a witch. I'm a witch. 
they're going to kill you either way. And so these people really were strong in their conviction that I am not doing this witchcraft. And as we find, Bridget still feels very firmly about that. So we'll be talking about that in a little bit here. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode has been brought to you by I Know What Scares You podcast. Have you ever seen a ghost or a UFO? Had a premonition that came true? Or experienced something that you simply can't explain? On I Know What Scares You, celebrity guests and listeners share weird true stories of their own. Real life experiences with the paranormal, the inexplicable, and the simply terrifying. Then a crack team of experts, including skeptoids Brian Dunning, anthropologist Natalia Reagan, mentalist Jonathan Pritchard, and Dr. Kiki Sanford, host of This Week in Science, take their best science-based shot at what they think really happened. And we're going to find this fascinating, Kelly, because I often wonder when you have these skeptical people, because we are open-minded skeptics, so we always try to debunk everything. When you have people that are completely science skeptic, we don't believe in this stuff, trying to debunk it or whatever. I'd love to know, have you guys been on an investigation and had anything happen? True. It usually changes that around. Was it an optical illusion, your brain playing tricks on you, or truly a mystery? Find out on I Know What Scares You. Subscribe now to I Know What Scares You podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, subscribe now to I Know What Scares You podcast. The amphitheater-style seating would accommodate 700 people and had images of great orators like Demosthenes and Cicero on the walls. Lectures were hosted every Tuesday night, with men paying an admission of $1 and women paid $0.75. There was a catch for the women, however. They needed to be introduced by a male in order to enter. So as you can imagine, women weren't invited to speak very often. Only a half-dozen women ever appeared on the Church Street stage. The most notable performance was by a British actress, Fanny Kemble, and she did a dramatic reading of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream during the 1849 and 50 season. Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, and suffragist Mary A. Livermore also spoke here, and despite the resistance to women, Salem's Lyceum hosted the Women's Suffrage Club of Salem. In 1848, author Nathaniel Hawthorne was appointed the corresponding secretary of the Salem Lyceum. And although he held this important position, he himself never gave any lectures. Apparently, he had horrible stage fright, but he did bring in his friends Horace Mann, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who appeared here 30 times, Henry David Thoreau, and Daniel Webster, who spoke on the history of the Constitution of the United States. Early speakers were members of the Salem Lyceum, and most did so for free, so that the mortgage on the building could be paid off more quickly. These men included Charles Upham, John Pickering, and Henry K. Oliver. Other later lecturers would be Oliver Wendell Holmes, speaking on lyceums and lyceum lectures. Former United States President John Quincy Adams spoke on faith and government. James Russell Lowell spoke on Dante. Richard Henry Dana Jr. spoke on the reality of the sea and the importance of cultivating the affections. The importance of cultivating the affections? What is that about? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a sex talk? Oh, my word. (laughs) And abolitionist Frederick Douglass did a timely speech on assassination and its lessons right after President Lincoln was assassinated. And this lyceum also hosted the abolitionist movement. And I think it was the women's abolitionist movement, too. So that was another really cool thing that they did there. But the most amazing event to take place here happened on February 12th, 1877. Alexander Graham Bell hosted the first public demonstration of a long distance telephone conversation. 
Bell made the call to his assistant Watson, who was in Boston. This was so popular, they did it again a few weeks later. Now, Kelly, this was the first long distance, so this wasn't the first telephone call, because that one we know they were in the same house or building, and they were just in different rooms, and that's when he was like, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. And Watson comes running over and says, I heard you, and I understood what you said. So that was very cool. I'd love to know what he said during this one. I can't find what the words were from Hmm. this one. It, It would be a little bit different to say from Salem to Boston, come on over here. I want to see you. That would not quite make sense. Eventually, the Lyceums fell out of favor, and the history here gets a bit murky. The original Lyceum burned down in the Great Salem Fire of 1914 and was replaced by the two-story brick building there today. A number of restaurants have called the spot home. The Colonial Cafe was opened in 1935, and then there was the Lyceum Bar and Grill and 43 Church Street. Turner Seafood opened here in November of 2013. Turner Fisheries were started by James F. Turner in 1954. He had emigrated from St. John's, Newfoundland to the Boston Fishing Pier in 1920. Turner became very successful as flying fresh seafood around the country became possible and many restaurants would advertise. Today's fish flown in fresh from Boston's Turner Fisheries. Say that five times fast. No. (laughs) Turner Fisheries became the nation's leading quality seafood house. In 1989, Jim's only son, John, started a new wholesale company, J. Turner Seafoods, in Gloucester, Massachusetts. J. Turner Seafoods Incorporated continues today, and now things have branched into the restaurant industry under John's four sons. In 1994, they opened Turner's Seafood Grill and Market in their hometown of Melrose, Massachusetts. They opened another location in Gloucester, and then they opened this restaurant in the Lyceum Hall in 2013. And they not only embrace fine seafood, they embrace their ghost stories. Lights here turn on and off by themselves and doors open and close on their own. Utensils get stolen with employees claiming that they sometimes have to bring patrons up to five spoons because they keep disappearing. Oh my word, what are they doing with all the spoons? I don't know. And do they return them back or do they have to buy a lot of extra utensils? I bet they're eating ice cream. Ghosts love ice cream. (laughs) Well, that could be. I just, I wonder what, what's the deal with the spoons? It's mostly spoons that they are using. Can you imagine you they keep reaching soup. over to get yourself some soup and then it's like, where'd that spoon go? I just <laughs> set it down right here. Maybe they're drinking tea. You don't know. I'd rather go with the ghosts like ice cream over tea. Or seafood soup. A nice bisque. Supposedly they have an amazing <laughs> lobster bisque at this restaurant, so that could be. All right, back to the show. <laughs> Since this land once was an apple orchard, people claim to smell the scent of apples. And when I did a ghost tour in Salem, that's one of the stories that I do remember. I think we were in a parking lot that was near this area. And he said that a lot of times in that general vicinity, they smell apples because this is where the apple orchard had been. And it was there for quite a few years. Really? Did you smell any apples? I did not. Oh, bummer. Bridget Bishop's spirit is the one experienced here most often. Some employees and patrons claim to have seen her at the top of the staircase on the second floor. There are also several mirrors in the restaurant, and people claim to have caught her reflection in them. And as we know, when it comes to mirrors and ghosts, they definitely have a connection to each other. And I don't know if it's just because spirits sometimes get trapped in the mirrors, or I often wonder why is it that a spirit can project its image onto a mirror, but when you turn around, you can't see them there? True. Yeah. What, what is it about the mirror that it can see the ghost? Yeah, I've wondered the same. I have all these questions, these scientific questions. <laughs> I what, see the wheels turning. When I get into the afterlife, <laughs> I want all of these answered. Terry Colbert was a former employee, and she claimed to have seen Bridget Bishop. It was a busy night. 
When I came up the stairs and looked up, I saw another woman standing on the other staircase leading up to the loft. I was petrified. My initial thought was that it was a person breaking into the restaurant. When I realized she wasn't a regular person, I ran back downstairs and almost fainted. Colbert described the woman as wearing a 17th century white dress. And that is how most people describe this woman, in a long flowing white dress. Colbert also saw chairs move on their own in the restaurant. Now, I'm wondering what person breaking into a restaurant would be wearing a long white flowing 17th century dress. (laughs) True. (laughs) I think that was probably just her gut reaction to seeing someone that shouldn't have been there. If these stories are true about Bridget Bishop, and if her spirit is really the one that's here that's haunting it, I really kind of like the idea that she's in a white dress. I don't know if she was hanged in a white dress, and so she ended up buried in a white dress. But because she was held up as this, you know, horrible, vile, satanic, witchy woman, it's kind of cool that in the afterlife, she's in a white dress, which would symbol... Shows her innocence. Yeah. Tim McGuire ran the Salem Night Tour, and he said... It's very common to hear things like voices or footsteps when nobody is around. Many people watch a woman walk by who suddenly disappears. We've had dozens of photos of faces in the window looking out and hands up against the glass. People feel sadness. Bishop, when she was brought to trial, wasn't treated very well. Spirits left behind would hang around and convey sadness if they were wrongly accused. There was also a Wiccan group that conducted a ritual on the second floor, and they claim to come in contact with a female ghost identifying herself as Annabelle. This spirit apparently hangs out in several buildings here and resembles the girl from the Ring movie. I've heard that she's like some 17-year-old girl. If I saw that, I'd be like, I'm out. I don't want to see any spirit that looks like that girl from the Ring movie. But you want the Holy Grail. (laughs) I do, but I don't know that I want the Holy Grail to show up like that. I get it. I'd rather see the woman in the 17th century white dress. Agreed. Which makes you wonder, I mean, this Wiccan group, what exactly were they conjuring and who is the spirit that can pop in and out of all of these different buildings? Both Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures has investigated this location. When Ghost Hunters was there doing an investigation, they had something weird happen with an antique cash register. While they were investigating, the cash register all of a sudden printed a receipt and it was time stamped, Good Morning. The register had not been programmed to print such a thing. There have been problems with other electrical equipment in the restaurant, too. That's really interesting. (laughs) That is weird. And I wonder what time it was. I'm assuming it was the wee hours of the morning. And that's why it said good morning. And when Ghost Adventures visited the Lyceum Hall in 2011, George Harrison was the owner at the time. And he told Zach that they definitely have a presence in the restaurant and that they believed that it was Bridget Bishop. They hosted weddings on the second floor and several times a female entity had shown up in pictures which Diane took off the TV and will put up on Instagram. Yeah, so they had two pictures that looked pretty weird to me. I'll put them up on Instagram, see what you guys think. It's interesting. It does look like there's a woman there that is not a clear woman. So, Zach also talked to contractors who had been putting in a sprinkler system at night. They joked about there being a ghost on the stairs because they'd heard the stories, but they stopped laughing when three boxes came flying down the stairs. Yeah, so you can imagine you've got all these contractors going, hey, remember, they've been talking about this place being haunted. Yeah, supposedly there's a ghost that hangs out on the stairs. Ooh, scary. Anybody see a ghost? Blah, blah, blah. And then here come three boxes flying down. (laughs) It's like, uh, maybe we better not joke about that. Who's laughing now? Exactly. I'm sure that's what she was thinking as she's kicking the things down the stairs. They had a young man, Max, who had his own paranormal group, join them for their investigation. 
They sent him up those stairs by himself with an audio recorder, and he captured a couple of EVP. The first came after he asked who hanged Bishop. The name Mary came through, and Mary Walcott was one of her accusers. Then Max asked what kind of apples she grew, and Zach said it was weird he would ask that right then because he smelled apples. Max said he asked because he smelled apples too. They definitely captured a female voice later in an EVP, and she seems to be saying, you come back. Yeah, so I don't know if she was inviting them to come back or if she wanted Max to go back up the stairs. I'm not sure. I would have liked, y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) What was interesting is that name Mary that came through. Obviously, I don't know how ghostly voices come through, but I know when I've listened to the spirit box and such, I can tell the difference between female and male voices. Sure. The Mary almost sounded like a male voice. Oh, interesting. So I don't know. It didn't sound like a female saying it, but I found it interesting because Mary Walcott was one of the accusers. Well, perhaps he was answering them with the name of the person that he knew accused her. Possibly. So we may have more than just Bridget Bishop's spirit here as well. And as we know, again, using the spirit box, sometimes you have all kinds of spirits hanging out. There's a courtyard behind the building, and this often features unexplained activity. High levels of electromagnetic activity have been picked up in the courtyard. And of course, apples are smelled here as well. Does the spirit of Bridget Bishop still hang around this location trying to prove her innocence? Is the Lyceum Hall haunted? That That is for for you to to decide. decide. Well, if nothing else, it sounds like a great place to eat. I love seafood, especially right there where it's caught. Heck yeah. Fresher the better. We want to invite you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. And brace yourselves because we have a whole bunch here. If you are a part of our spectacular crew, you'll understand why this happened. We are forever grateful to our executive producers. You are the main reason why we are able to put this show on. As we said in the Spooktacular crew, you are 80% of our funding. So without you guys, we really could not do it. First, we want to thank Suzanne Selk, who already is an executive producer. She sent a one-time donation, which was very generous. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And she's going to be staying at the Denim Inn this next week. I know. I can't wait to hear all about it. As long as Hurricane Elsa doesn't screw things up. (sighs) Right. Amy Woolley also sent us a one-time donation. So thank you for that. We want to welcome back Faith Quinlan. You are going to be put into the niche wall. We want to thank Gabriel Montevici for raising your support. We're going to be moving you under a marble headstone. We are also welcoming back Stephanie Valiant. We're going to be putting you in a garden crypt. Jessica Garcia raised her support. We're going to be moving you into a garden crypt. And Shelly Cadwallader also increased her support. She's going to be moving into a grand mausoleum. And now welcoming in the newbies to the cemetery, we have John Metcalf. You're going to be put under an obelisk headstone. Angela Rothermel, Lauren Virgo, and Carrie McGinty, you're all going to be buried in chest tombs. And Ashley Gonzalez, you're going to be buried in a garden crypt. Thank you so much, everyone. We greatly appreciate you. And this episode was brought to you by I Know What Scares You podcast. Sweet dreams.
Booger? Booger? Barker? Booger? What? <laughs> Your throat's doing what? <laughs> I always get that throat gurgle, you know, after you swallow a drink of water or something. Yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like a burp, but it's not a burp. No, it just makes a gurgling sound and it talks back at me, so. <laughs> what does it say to you, Kelly? <laughs> that moniker certainly didn't match those early years for the per- Puritan. Puritan. Those down Puritans. They certainly weren't like, well, they could be like cats because cats can be kind of vile sometimes. Mean. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, purr. Yeah. <laughs> this first school of industrial training for men would inspire the first national education. It's. <laughs> He had emigrated from St. John's, Newfoundland to the Boston Pier Fishing. No. <laughs> Turner became very successful at, fr- at frying fish, 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 fish. <laughs> I'm so tired. Today's fish, thrown in fresh from Boston. <laughs> really? Wow. That's some weird advertising there. I don't know if the people There's quite got the message. a lot of alliteration here. <laughs> <laughs> 